Uh, this morning, we have two verses, which is kind of nice. You just kind of get to go, ah, oh, two verses. But two verses are also a little bit of trouble, because when you only have two verses, usually like in a meeting where you go, oh, we don't have a lot for the agenda, this is probably going to be a short meeting, and you know that's the kiss of death. Uh, anytime somebody says it's going to be a short meeting, just go ahead and add 50% of the normal length to it, uh, because we just start blabbing. So with two verses, you feel less pressure to speed on through, uh, but I think these two verses are going to be really beneficial for us and taking these two on purpose as just two as we continue on into James. We're getting close to chapter 5, or two weeks from chapter 5, uh, I believe, so in two more Sundays we'll be there. Uh, but verse James 4, 11 through 12 reads like this uh, in the CSB, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So, Father, prepare us in our hearts to hear what is spoken and to submit ourselves to it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are many times in my life, likely in yours, where you need to apologize to people. And the reason is because we often can't seem to speak in a way that is consistent with what is true. We cannot speak in a way that is accurate. It's embarrassing, isn't it, when you realize you've said something. Sometimes the concern is not that we said it, it's that somebody heard us say it, and it might get back and make us look bad. Not that it's not what's going on in our heart, it's, what's, it's, the, it's the damage control that we try to cause once we realize that what we said got heard by more people. Um, that's what bothers us. It's not the thing itself, it's the consequences to us of the thing that we said, not the consequence to others, which is, again, ugly, embarrassing, and just, just downright wrong and sinful for us to do. And yet, flip it. I bet everyone in this room, doesn't matter what age you are, right? Doesn't matter what age you are, everyone in this room wants to be spoken of in a way that is honest and in keeping with who you are, if you're a believer, who you are in the Lord, in keeping with what God has done in you, in a way that is encouraging, uplifting, honest. We want that. And yet we so often aren't that for others. Instead, we are judgmental, condescending, angry, opinionated, arrogant, selfish, my way or highway kind of people. And it's funny, maybe it shouldn't be funny, um, because it almost feels like a running joke that that might be what you get in the life of a church. Oh yeah, that's just kind of how we handle. That's what we do. That's how that's how we talk. That churches can be backbiting places. It feel it feels as if sometimes you can find people. I'm saying using the word feels on purpose. Find people who uh, are not a part of the church who will just speak honestly and lovingly about you, and you actually feel less condemned by unbelievers than believers, which is just an odd thing that we seem to be able to do to one another. 
And that thought, and I know it grieves you, it grieves me, because we are so quick to assume the worst about people, even in our own church family. And too many times, our language does not reflect what we see in Scripture about our brothers and sisters. We do not speak in a way that is in keeping with what God has spoken as true. Speaking away with what we feel would be true, or what we want to say. Now, James has been concerned throughout this letter about the way people speak. Chapter 3, the way people speak. The beginning of chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What is that coming from? It's from within you, and it shows up in how you speak and argue and talk and be angry Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, don't criticize, don't judge one another. James is concerned about how the speech of the church reflects the heart of the church or what the heart of the church should be. And I, I actually find myself hopeful, even though I know this is true about you, me, and us, that we have a way of speaking that is not in keeping with what God has done. Even though I know that we do that, I'm hopeful because I know who God is and I know what is true in his scriptures and I know the Spirit's desire for us because it is revealed for us. James 4, 11 and 12 show us a church that speaks differently and gives us a reason why. So it doesn't just say, hey, do, do something different. It gives us a reason why that should be. So in these two verses, we will see the continuing idea of people's speech. He was teaching in 3.1. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control his whole body. Verse 2. Who among you is wise and understanding? End of chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 11, don't criticize one another. We'll get into the wording here in just a moment. So in these two verses, we're going to see the significant problem that exists often in our own hearts. We use the word slander instead of criticize, because criticism, I think, is too broad in the theme of the passage, or at least in how we talk about it, right? Interpreters chose criticism for a reason, but often when we think of criticism, we, we, we broaden it so big. They're like, so I can't say that, like, the food didn't taste good, um, that I wouldn't have preferred that. Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a specific way that we like to talk. And then we'll see why that's a problem. We'll see what to do about it. Like I said, James is a preacher, Every little kind of grouping of the passages in James feel like sermons. He's going to say something, he's going to illustrate something, he's going to reinforce something, he's going to give the reason why. You kind of break these out. It makes it really easy for somebody preaching or teaching James because he did all the work for you. He said, here it is, this is what I say, and this is why I say it, and this is, you know, I'm going to say it again. So we'll start with verse 11. This is what he says. Slandering your church family opposes God's law. That's what he says. It opposes God's law. Now we're going to have to get into what the word means, uh, slandering, and what the idea of God's law means, but verse 11 is right there. And we're going to focus in on that word of criticize, but in verse 11 it says, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
So that first sentence, right there, first sentence, kind of look at it. Not sure what your translation might say. It might say criticize. It might say speak evil. Because saying this relationship is difficult, is that speaking evil, right? So criticize kind of gets so big that we're not sure what it means. Speak evil kind of say, well, what is, what is speaking evil? And so I think that the idea of slander helps us. We often think of it as a legal term, which is why we don't use it. And we're like, well, that's, that's like slander and libel. Like that's, a, that's something the lawyers talk about. But let's just, let's just kind of define it like this. To speak about someone in a way that's inconsistent with what's true. To speak about someone in a way that's inconsistent with what is true. You could likely add motive or intent intent behind this idea to hurt or to harm. If somebody says, hey, today Hans preached on James 4, 13, I wouldn't be like, slander! Right? Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't come chasing you down or bringing you before the elders to say, well, they got the verse wrong, right? That's just a mistake. But if you speak about your brother or sister, and I'm talking about the church family because James talks about the church family, it could apply to anybody. I mean, oh, so I can talk about believers in a way that's inconsistent, unbelievers in a way that's inconsistent with what's true? No. But when it shows up in a church, what you can do is fall back on the fact that God, God has spoken clearly against his people operating in this fashion. So if it happens here, it should clearly overflow out of here. But if it doesn't happen here, I doubt that it's happening there. Slander, to speak in a way that is inconsistent with what is true, likely with a motive or intent to hurt or to harm or to injure with how we speak in a way that props us up over others, makes us look better than others, talk better than others, appear better than others, to bring them down so that we can come up. We know James is talking about the church, that's why I say church family, Because he says, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. There are many times throughout James where he uses that familial tone, brothers. He's talking about their issues. There are times when James refers to others. He'll say, suppose a rich man wearing gold ring and very fine clothes came into one of your meetings. And a poor man wearing shabby clothes also comes in, right? So with that, we're talking about a different person, in the first few verses of James chapter 5, we'll get to in a couple weeks, you hear a different type of person there where there's judgment coming on the rich who are uh, operating in ways that are inconsistent with what is true. They're not being generous or being stingy. And there's such strong judgment language with no backstop like we heard last week of humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. I mean, it's just like Amos, straight condemnation. So there are times in James where, where the language shifts, but he's talking clearly to the church family here, God's people. So when you hear slandering, I hope that helps us because you go, well, does that mean I should never have an informed opinion on what I see? That doesn't, that doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you, you I've, I've been corrected for things that I've said. I've been uh, asked questions about things that I've said. I have uh, been told people's opinions of me by those same people. I've also been told people's opinions of me by friends of those people, as you have, I'm sure, too. Right? Well, you know, <laughs> some people have said, right, which is like the kiss of death again because you just go, some people, right, like your mom, um, So we have this way of speaking 
about people that's ugly. That's what we're going to address today. It's not the, I see in scripture this. Can you help me understand that? It's the speaking about others with an intent to hurt, harm, destroy, lift up ourselves, bring them down, unbecoming of those who follow Jesus. So we need to recognize it's inappropriate, but also at the same time that it exists within us. It exists within our hearts very often. Ways to talk about people. It's not true. I have been a part of meetings where people have said, and it's like the telephone game of church life. Well, I heard in that meeting you guys had a vote, and that vote was this. And I'm like, okay, there was never a vote, so there was never an outcome. I have no idea how you heard that that happened. But somewhere, someone is deciding to say things that aren't true. And you're mad about it. You're mad about it. That's what we're talking about. Can you believe what they said? Can you believe that? have this way within us of speaking so falsely and it's not to be the case for the believer James says why this is such an important thing if you do this you're actually judging and speaking against the law and if you judge the law you're not a doer of the law you're no longer concerned about doing it now you're putting yourself up over it no, we were in Galatians, and this was on purpose at the beginning of the year. So when James talks about the law, and then you read Galatians, and Paul's like, no more law, right? Like, party all the time, no law, law's out, Judaizers out, like, we don't want to do this anymore. And then you got James coming alongside Paul at about the same time, writing these, and he's like, hey, you're not doing the law if you do this. And we might go, wait a minute, get out of here, like, this isn't accurate. Remember how James talks about the law. He says this earlier in discussing favoritism. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. When James says law, he's not just kind of talking about anything that exists within what we'd call the Old Testament. He wouldn't call it that. He'd call it the Scriptures. But anything within the Old Testament. He's talking about what he has already defined as the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. This comes again from Leviticus 19.18, which reads like this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So James is not saying, well, you're just speaking against the whole law. He's saying that you're speaking inconsistently with how God has asked for his people to operate. This has been right, backed up by Jesus, who says the same thing about loving others. And the reason he says that you're doing this when you're speaking in this manner, the reason is the problem is because you then are not doing what exists within the scriptures, but you are now placing yourself in an authority above it. That's why he says, you're not a doer of the law, you have now become a judge of the law, you're placing yourself in authority over what God has spoken. That is dangerous ground to somehow put yourself as the pillar of what God has spoken. And so essentially, the congregation was saying, we're not concerned about 
loving our neighbor as ourselves, we're concerned about loving ourselves as ourselves and not really loving our neighbor. James says when you do that, you're not only disobeying the law, you are somehow finding yourself superior to it because you have chosen to say no to it. You have said, I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to talk like that. I'm not going to do that. So in James's mind, he's going back to Leviticus 19.18. When you harm your church family with the words, you're actually harming the law that God has given and has commanded us to obey. Do this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever... I started a manuscript, and very often I go off script. I'm about to go off script. Forgive me. Have you ever been afraid to talk to another brother or sister in the church because you don't know how they'll take what you say and what they'll do with it? Have you ever been afraid to say, I don't really want to confess this sin because if I confess this sin, they're probably going to think less of me? Not only might they think less of me, but they might get vindictive about it. They might get angry about it. They might harbor frustration and bitterness toward me. And and then what's me confessing something to someone becomes the whole church mad at me, right? Well, one, on one side, you go, you know, we can't ultimately be responsible for how somebody might receive that. But the very fact that we have this reflex really grieves me. That we can't absorb what isn't even the worst in somebody because the Lord already knows that. But we can't even absorb some portion of that without there being this fear that if I say this, I don't know what's going to happen. It's kind of like we're trained up by our biological families to go, well, if I tell my brother or I tell my mom or I tell my dad, everyone's going to find out. Which works to our favor sometimes when we don't have to tell everybody something. All right? We actually use the, the rumor mill to get news through. Hey, tell them we're expecting you know, like, that's, that way I don't have to tell everybody and make all the phone calls. So we use the rumor mill to our advantage, but we have this fear in church life, and I just have to tell you guys, I hate it. I feel it, and I hate it. I hate that the church is not the place where people feel like they can be spoken of lovingly. I hate that we feel like church is the place where we have to be on edge because we're not sure what somebody might say. I hate that the church is the place where we're in community group, we're not really, we don't really want to share what's actually going on because we don't want to receive what might come from it. But that's often what happens. I uh, have been a part of this you know, class-based gym junk for a bit. It's not really junk. I enjoy it. I've been doing it since I was 30. Uh, so it just, when people tell me what to do, it's way easier than me trying to guess. So that's why I do it. Hey, let's get in a big group of people, and, and let's just all work out doing the same thing so that I don't have to think about it. But you pay a premium for that, for not thinking, in real life and at the gym. So it's funny because I've read articles about how these types of environments are replacing, for many young people, church because of the value they find from the relationships. (laughs) Like the support that they find from these people. The things that they do and the ways that they talk. And you go, well, of course, they're unbelievers. Like you don't have this, you don't have this position of authority in their lives to say what you need to say. But I'm like, isn't it funny that we'd rather run and have conversations with people about our lives and our stuff with people who might not even know the Lord? Because it feels like we might be received 
more gladly and joyfully there than we are with one another. I hate it. I hate it, and I wish, I wish that I, you know, just like that, it could be different. But it's like coming to Jesus makes us, you know, it like, it like redlines our desire to judge and be opinionated. I was talking to people, we were just on vacation this week. I'm going to get back to the manuscript. It's coming, guys. It's coming. I'll skip over some points or something. And uh, they were like, it must be really weird pastoring during a time like this. And I say, yeah, it is. Uh, it, is it is odd. But the mute button really helps. <laughs> just go, I'm done, right? Just going to log out, not pay attention, <laughs> head in the sand if that's what you want to call it. But you're just dealing with how so many people feel. And I'm, I get a little nervous. I'm like, if we're comfortable posting and sharing this part of how we feel, and the Lord knows this part of how we feel, he knows all of it, I'm like, I don't even want to go down that road. Because it reveals some really nasty things about how we live out what we see in the Word. that we find it easier to live in opposition to what God wants. Which actually isn't the case because we have his spirit and to yield to his spirit, to be empowered, to do what he has put before us is actually the easier route. But it's so uncommon for us that we can't even do that. All right, back to, that was, that was all, should have been two paragraphs. First half of verse 12, only God is the true judge. And again, when I say A or B, I'm usually meaning the first half or the second half. Sometimes I'll say C, but that, that's only when I'm getting really desperate. And I do this more with James because James is sometimes hard to follow. The way that, you know, as my friend said when we started, it's like following a text message conversation where everyone, like they know, you know what you're talking about with your friend, but if I read it, I'd be like, what in the world? Like, they just brought up something that they talked about three days ago as if it just happened, right? As we were going through James, that's how sometimes it feels. But remember, James is writing this probably not over, you know, the 16 weeks or whatever that we'll be in it. He's not going to take him that long to write it. He's writing it more quickly than we're reading it. Only God is the true judge. So we already see slandering your church family, not a good thing. It opposes God's law. And then in the first half of 12, he's going to give us why. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. Now, this, I'm about to say, happens so often, it's embarrassing. But we regularly neglect to remember that God is God and we are not. I mean, I could, I could give any theist that statement and they would say, True. But then if we actually inventoried our lives, there would probably be in any given day, many times we lived as if God were an afterthought and that we were supreme in our decision-making authority. There's only one lawgiver and judge. Back to chapter 2, because 2 and this portion of 4 seem to go together some. When James says... Well, the same person who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do this but not that, you still break the law. Why? Because the law 
came from God. God is a unity. He's not all parceled out into pieces where you go, okay, well, you can break these like this, and you can break those like that, and you can break these like this, and if you break this one, you're still okay over here. That's how we live. That's not how God operates. We live as if it's okay to do some bad things, but not really bad things. And then we live comparatively. Well, at least I'm not doing this. At least I'm not doing that. Yeah, I do bad things, but have you seen my spouse? Have you seen my brother? Have you seen my pastor? So when James has a view of the law where if you do anything, there's only one person who has the authority to accurately and actually judge the hearts of men, women, and children. And it's the one, the only authority over it. This is how authority works, right? Is that the authority makes the world right? We use the word authority, but like God the creator has authority over this world because God the creator made this world. So we are in submission to his authority here. Even unbelievers are. We submit to him. So when God creates the law and says operate like this, it's not the law Right? I'll say a little L law that we're actually opposing. It's the creator of it. The authority of it. You've probably said something like this in your house as a parent or a grandparent. You do this because I said so. You get it. You get authority. I, you've heard it, huh? Yeah. You do this because I, I looked at his sisters like, yep, uh, because I said so, and this is my house. How gracious and patient is God to let us act like little children as a church family and not just wipe us out. To be so selfish, self-motivated, unconcerned about one another. How gracious is God to daily watch us act like children. And not remove us. He's been doing this forever. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. That he waits with us and he teaches us and he guides us. And it's gracious and good. Created people feel as if they are better than a creator. That they have more authority over the creator. There's only one person who is created... There's only one person who lays claim to all of life, and that is God. So when we then try to assume the position of authority in the lives of others, assume a place in the lives of others that God has not granted to us, 
then we try and play God. When you try and play God, you lose. In every way. And I believe this about us. Don't we want Genesis to be a place where what is said about you is consistent, loving, and true? It's hard to be that. I, I get exhausted. I was sharing with people even this morning. I was like, we were all on vacation. I said, how was vacation? I was like, it was great. Until I knew I had to come back. And like, I said, no year has made me want to not pastor as much as 2020 in my life. Um, and I'm not even joking. Because of half, having to navigate both how I feel and how you feel about everything. And I'm just like, shouldn't there be one group of people in the entire world that are the best people to be around right now? Because of their recognition of God's character, God's love for them, and then because of that, their love for one another. Shouldn't there be one place of all the places where we can joyfully and gladly be together? And yet, it often isn't that case there. To live in opposition to what God desires for the church is exhausting. It's exhausting for you, it's exhausting for me, it's exhausting for us. And I've been that, and I've asked forgiveness, and I've been at meetings and coming on the back end and said, I shouldn't have said what I said. I was mad. I was frustrated. It wasn't true. I've gone to people and been like, I shouldn't have said that. I've said something and then immediately after it said, I shouldn't have said that. Like within 10 seconds, I shouldn't have said that. What does James say? <laughs> With our mouth we bless our Lord and Father, and when we curse people who are made in God's likeness, blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth, my brothers and sisters. These things should not be this way. It's just again, 4, 11, and 12 is reflective of it, but it gives a deeper understanding as to why that's so significant. Because you're playing God when you do that. So finally, as we get toward the end, this last part of verse 12, we read James's question. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? If you're familiar with rhetorical questions, that's one of them. Like, there's not a right answer, like any answer is right. Like, oh, there's no right or wrong. There's a wrong answer here. The answer that should be supplied by every believer is no one. I'm no one to do that. I'm no one to assume that role. I'm no one to take up that mantle. I'm no one to say that, post that, respond like that, send that. I'm no one. So, I think kind of two-pronged statement here at the end for us is this. To know your place 
your position and to trust the judge. To know your place and to trust the judge. To know your place is that authority statement. I am not in charge. I am not the right one here. I have no position here to say that. Speak like that. Act like that. None. So know your place. And also, and I mean it this way, just kind of as a tangent, don't put yourself lower than the place God has given you as his creation. Jesus will say, Aren't you, isn't your life much more valuable than some birds? You're significant. You're created in God's image. But what's that word at the beginning? Created in God's image. You are not God. But you're created to reflect him. And I've said before, I love, I just love what God says to Gideon in Judges. Greeting, O valiant warrior. When the dude's freaking out and like, uh, I think you have the wrong address. I think the valiant warriors are down the road. It's not me. What does God always seem to do for us? But to speak to what is true, even if we don't see it. He'll do that. So know our place, know his authority, know our role, know our identity there. And then secondly is to trust the judge. This is really, really hard for us. Will you be comfortable, look out, will you be comfortable with people speaking wrong of you and saying this, God's got it. God's got this. If your answer is probably not, I want to go ahead and point you to the example of Jesus, who seemed to regularly be slandered and spoken of in ways that were absolutely inconsistent with what is true. And yet, even in those moments, did not try to vindicate or exalt himself above others messes with our heads, doesn't it? Are we okay trusting that God's got it? It's really hard because we're proud to be Americans. Are we okay going, God is the one in control, in charge, and has authority? And that even, even though we have a way we should speak, let's just say it doesn't happen that way. Can you still trust the Lord? Or do you feel like you must take matters into your own hands? Even if that means the disparaging or downgrading of another person created in God's image. It's such, a, it's such a funky place for us to have to live, but it's what God asks of us. If God is lawgiver and judge, I need to trust him to be that person. I need to be in submission and surrender to that person and then live in the way that he wants me to live. I don't need to assume his role. And then also, if I am wrong, I need to trust his authority and his sovereignty in it. That's hard. That's hard. Can you dream about that kind of church where you're glad to be there? You're glad to talk and you're glad to share. 
and you want to be quick to run to your other brothers and sisters because you know they're going to speak life to you and encourage you and lift up your heart and point you to the authority, the lawgiver, and the judge. That we then reflect the God who speaks about us and rejoices over us, is glad about his children, I, I really believe, and I'm just stupidly optimistic. I believe that the Lord has that for us because I see what he wants for us here. That type of church, that type of space. Where what we say is what we mean, and what we mean is what is true. You can mean what you say and still be a liar. But for it to be true. People were, I play a church where people love to become members because they're still filled up by what they hear in their community group and what they experience here and when they're serving and what they're doing. They're like, I just want to be here all the time. I want to be around these people all the time because it fills me up versus, oh man, it's Sunday. I hope so-and-so doesn't come. I don't want to have to do that. I don't, have to, I don't have to navigate that. I don't have to, to see that. Or, oh, man, I just, you know, we had that weird chat. <laughs> now we're going to be together in the same room. And, right? The place where the Lord is the Lord, we are not, and we speak in a way that reflects what he's done for us and what he wants for us. It can happen because we have a spirit. And he's revealed what he wants for us. We don't have to guess.